But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition and lifestyle behaviours can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey everyone, welcome back to episode 7 of the REACH podcast. In today's show, I'm chatting to Kristen Campbell, who is an assistant professor up at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Uh, Kristen's done a ton of work in the area of, of cancer research, particularly of breast. And essentially, today's show is just giving you a, a really comprehensive overview of the field of exercise oncology. We talk about some of the top research questions we're trying to answer right now, how we're going to try and get there. And Kristen just does a phenomenal job of giving you an overview of the field from where we've been in the history of it to where we are now and how we can move forward. So I won't do it any more injustice and we'll just jump right into it. So here's the interview and I hope you enjoy it. So we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll just dive into, just give us a brief introduction to your background, who you are and kind of how you got into this field. No problem. So my name is Kristen Campbell. I'm a physiotherapist or physical therapist, how, what they call them in the US. I'm Canadian and I grew up in Canada. Um, my interest really was in the role of how exercise could play a role for cancer patients. As a physiotherapist, I worked in clinically and I saw the benefits potentially of exercise rehabilitation for this group, but that no services were available. And that really spurred me to go back and want to look at how we could do more research to make that happen. What was, what was interesting to you or what was unique to you about breast cancer in particular that kind of spurred your interest there? The reason I was really interested in breast cancer prevention and in survivorship was around the early research in the late 90s or early 90s that being more physically active might lower your risk. And certainly up to that point, the risk factors for breast cancer were things that you really couldn't change. So it was early age of menarche, late age of menopause, age that you had your first pregnancy, some socioeconomic factors. And really those are things that were hard to change. So my interest was piqued by potentially the role of exercise. If that was something that could potentially impact your breast cancer risk by being more active, you could lower your risk. Then I really wanted to understand why that might be and, and try and, and get that message further out so that people knew, um, had opportunities potentially to decrease their breast cancer risk. That's that's brilliant. And I think you, you hit a really interesting point there in that 10, 15, 20 years ago, you know, or even way back when, there wasn't really this interest in how lifestyle behaviors could modify cancer risk. And uh, you'd be more in, in the best position or a better position than most to be able to talk about the history of the field and how how that has evolved to really appreciate how much lifestyle, nutrition and exercise can play a role in your risk. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, the history is kind of interesting. And I think, you know, in thinking about how this field has evolved, the first studies of exercise for people undergoing, say, cancer treatment really didn't, weren't published until the late, um, sort of mid-1980s. So the first publication that was really was 1986, 1988, by a woman named Winningham, um, who was an oncology nurse. And she literally just said, you know, I think my patients could benefit from this. And very small studies put the patients on bikes during their chemotherapy, not while they're having an infusion, but during the time frame, you know, the couple of weeks they were getting chemotherapy and really started to see a benefit. And those were the first studies that showed it was possible. Like, yes, this is safe. Patients can tolerate this. And the field has really exploded from there. Um, so the first study is really safety. Then it really was the exercise psychologist who took up that mantle and really ran with it. And so there was a lot of research looking at the role of exercise, improving quality of life, depression, feelings of, um, you know, those type of more psychosocial pieces. And it wasn't until more the late 90s, which is when I went back to graduate school, when the physiologist, um, which is where my training is as an exercise scientist during my graduate career, really wanted to understand, well, why was this happening? If 
exercise re reduced fatigue for people receiving cancer treatment. What was that about? What type of exercise was required to really see that benefit? Was it changes in hemoglobin, changes in oxygen delivery? What was it that might be playing a role in this improvement in these symptoms? So that um, was probably where a lot of this uh, research really took off for me personally. And then there was a wealth of information that has grown since the late 90s into the 2000s. Different cancer sites were now being looked at, not just breast cancer. And really, that culminated in the publication in 2010 of the ACSM uh, roundtable for exercise guidelines for cancer survivors. So that's sort of the time frame from 1986-88 to the first studies. Then there was just a snowball of, of interest in this field and more research that was done that really led to those guidelines in 2010. It was a very kind of slow progression in, in the early 80s and, and 90s in just the awareness of this. We may be onto something here with exercise. And then, as you said, some, somewhere around the, the mid 2000s and particularly when, you know, the Australian uh, society and along with the ACSM brought out these guidelines, just an exponential increase in the interest. And what's been fascinating for me to watch is every year we come back to our conferences and every year there's more and more people doing really interesting stuff in different areas of physical activity and, and cancer survivorship. And that leads to, you know, the, one of, I think one of the, my favorite papers in the area is one that you co-authored with just, <laughs> quite frankly, some of the, the biggest experts in our field in terms of the, the top 10 research questions related to physical activity and, and cancer survivorship. And I think um, it does such a good job of, one, giving an overview of the field, but two, helping us direct our efforts and bringing awareness to the really key areas we need to focus on in terms of how we need to 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 move this field forward can you can you just give us an overview of what that paper is about and and pick out a couple of key questions there that you really think are important in this area. Yeah, no, I'm happy that you've highlighted that. It was a really neat opportunity. We were asked, you know, what are the top 10 research questions related to physical activity and cancer survivorship and asked to write something about that. And this was done with Carrie Kernier, who is from the University of Alberta and very well known in this field and actually my PhD supervisor and was one of the leaders that really has pushed this field forward. I'm Dr. Laura Rogers, who's at the University of Alabama and Birmingham. Myself, I'm Jeff Valance, who's at Athabasca University, and Dr. Christine Friedenreich from the Alberta Health Services. And she's also quite senior in the field as well, looking at big population level data to see are people who are more physically active at a higher risk or lower risk of cancer, and then cancer survivors who are active after their treatment, does that have any impact on recurrent survival, those kind of endpoints. So what we did is uh, we were asked, uh, Carrie, kind of, Carrie Kearney kind of organized us and said, okay, what are your top 10 questions? So we all independently set those in. And then uh, we had to merge the list and kind of debate which ones we were going to make it into the top 10. But there's a fairly um, a good amount of consensus. So um, in terms of highlighting a few of the questions, it really is a top 10 list. Um, the first question, and they are sort of in order of um, relative importance, was the question, does physical activity reduce the risk of cancer recurrence um, and or improve survival? And I think that's a question that I commonly get asked whenever I'm, I'm talking about this topic. And I'm sure it's, it's um, you know, that, that others have experienced that same thing. If I'm more active, will this change um, my trajectory of my cancer care? So my answer to that question when I give the, the response is that we don't really know. And that's what is shown in this, uh, in this document as well. We highlight there's a numerous um, observational studies. So those that have done population level studies and asked people how active they were and followed them along. There's generally a consensus that people that are more active after, during either before their cancer diagnosis or after their cancer diagnosis do have a reduced risk of um, all-cause mortality, so the risk of dying, um, as well as potentially um, risk of dying of that particular cancer. And the relative risk reductions or the amount that we think this, this might play a role is about a 30 to 40% um, reduction in um, risk of all-cause mortality or cancer-related death with breast cancer and colon, colorectal cancer um, in those that are most active to the least active. The difficulty with observational research is it's not a cause and effect. You can't um, say that definitely being more active will happen on a, on a personal level that will have an impact. This is more global level and it's observational. It's not cause and effect. There is one study which is highlighted in the paper that has looked at a randomized trial. So women that were undergoing chemotherapy were randomized to aerobic exercise, resistance training, or just their usual lifestyle. And they actually followed those women for about eight years and did try and look at what happened in terms of cancer outcomes. So it's not a perfect design because they were randomized to an intervention, but 
it's quite a small study and they weren't, um, the outcome of death wasn't the main outcome. So they're not really statistically powered to do it. But what they did show is that there was a uh, consistent suggestion that um, those that were in the exercise group, so the aerobic and resistance together, did have an improved eight-year um, disease-free survival rate compared to the other groups. So th- so there's some uh, early suggestions that there may play a role, but it is still observational at this point. So I tell people that it does improve your, car- your exercise, improves your risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, improves your quality of life, feelings of well-being, and we don't know exactly what it's doing for your cancer outcomes at this point, but it has those host of benefits. And there's some suggestions. So, you know, to me, it can't hurt. I think that last point is such such an important one that I want to highlight in that the treatments we have for cancer, particularly when we catch it earlier, have become so advanced that oftentimes folks aren't really dying of the disease. They're dying of comorbidities such as obesity, such as diabetes or, or cardiovascular disease. And ultimately, you know, as your survivorship improves, they're the things that become problem areas for people. And whether or not activity reduces cancer recurrence risk uh, is a sidebar to overall health and wellness. And that while we don't know as, as much about cancer recurrence, we know a lot about cardiovascular disease and overall mortality. So as you said, it's it's better to err on the side of being fit and active than kind of saying, well, we don't know it works, so I'm not going to try it. Definitely. And then other questions that were, were really interesting is the second one, which is where I'm really interested. If we can't follow, randomize people to exercise and, and not and follow them for long enough to see what happens to their cancer, is there something kind of a proxy of that or something in between that we could use as a really effective outcome to say, yes, exercise is really having an impact on cancer? And so that's the second question. Does physical activity influence cancer treatment decisions, completion rate, or response? And that, to me, is very interesting, um, the chemotherapy completion rate, because as many people know with chemotherapy, it's typically given in a cycle. So you receive your dose, um, then two or three weeks later, you receive another dose. And really, that scheduling is to um, have the most effect on the cancer cells, but also allow your healthy cells to be able to recover in time for the next dose. And so if you can stay on that treatment schedule, so you you stay on the two or three week cycle, there's not delays, sometimes it must be delayed a little bit by the response you have, or they have to reduce the dose they plan to give you, that in theory is maybe linked to a, a poor outcome only because the fact is that they wanted to give you this dose and this schedule because that's what we know is the most beneficial. And so there's actually been one study that looked at that specifically. And this, again, was a trial of women undergoing chemotherapy for breast cancer. And they randomized women to aerobic exercise, resistance exercise, or usual lifestyle during the 16-ish weeks of chemotherapy. And the group that was doing resistance training actually had a better chemotherapy completion rate. They got more of what they were supposed to get on the schedule they were supposed to get than the, uh, than the usual care group. And so that to me is really interesting. That is kind of a, a maybe a piece along the road from um, exercise all the way to recurrence and survival outcomes, but knowing what happens at treatment and you got more treatment that you were supposed to have. So to me, that's really interesting. And there's a lot of interest in the research field of looking at that particular question. I think that is one of my favorite studies in our field because of that reason and the idea of chemo completion rate. And and it's fascinating that it came out in 2007 or 2009, uh, one of them. But either way, when it came out, I, I'm so surprised that that hasn't become a norm or a standard outcome in these trials that, that undergo various treatments. When you're looking at exercise during treatment, I think that treatment completion rate should absolutely be a part of those outcomes because we have the data anyway and if we can show slowly build this body of evidence that you can get you can handle higher doses or or your regularly scheduled doses you can finish treatment quicker and you can get back to your your quote-unquote regular life and get back to work and just get on with survivorship quicker is just a phenomenal piece of this and it's such a unique and an interesting question to be answered by us moving forward. And the difficulty is we do have the data, but it's a little bit tricky to get it and get good quality. So that's where, it, you know, I, I agree with you. Once that 2007 study came out, you know, there should have been people pouring onto this. And the difficulty really is that for most of the research studies, they were sort of done maybe slightly divorced from the clinical research centers, potentially, or sorry, not the clinical research center, but the clinical center where people were getting cancer treatment. So access to the medical charts might've been a bit difficult for people. 
And then going through all the charts to figure out what people were supposed to get and why they didn't get it is quite a feat. So um, hopefully with electronic medical records, the access to those kind of outcomes will improve and we'll see more of these studies. Incidentally, the next question is one that we both kind of land on. Um, let's talk about this idea of optimal exercise prescription? Yeah, the, the what is the optimal exercise prescription for cancer survivors is a great question. And I think the main thing is that we don't know exactly. And what we have su- suggested to date, it really is um, around those ACSM guidelines that are very general. It's to avoid inactivity, return to normal activity as soon as possible, following your diagnosis, and then just following the physical activity guidelines for strength and aerobic exercise for the general population, which is, you know, 150 minutes per week and two times a week for resistance training. So it's very nonspecific. So I think as someone who works in the field, I guess in some ways that's great because it doesn't have to be too complicated. It's just do what you would do for everyone else and just make sure you're monitoring. On the flip side, you're like, is this really the most effective intervention we could be giving people? And so that's where the the question here really goes into the next generation studies. What do we need to do? And that's where going back to the good old training principles, which is where you and I spend our time thinking about (laughs) what frequency, intensity, type, and time, these are all variables that could be used to better tailor exercise or look at what the responses are, why there was no response. And so I think that's where um, people need to go. It's a little bit difficult to do some of those trials. You know, um, people don't want to be randomized to more or less exercise than the other person. They want what's ideal. Um, But I think there's definitely um, that's where some of the research probably needs to go. And the one study that's really been published that has tested that probably in in a large trial to date was another study by the Kernier Group in 2013, which again, in women in breast cancer, so you see the theme here, majority of research has been done in that population. Um, But this time they tested uh, the uh, um, duration of activity. So you did aerobic activity for 20 to 30 minutes, which one group. Then there was the higher duration group, which was 50 to 60 minutes of aerobic activity. And then there was a combined group that did sort of 30 minutes of aerobic activity, 30 minutes of resistance. And this was all during chemotherapy. And the interesting thing they found, which I guess is counterintuitive for you and I who think that, you know, duration of activity is probably important, is that there really was no additional benefits of the higher durations, so going from 30 minutes to 60 minutes, um, or the combination of aerobic resistance training on the main outcome, which was patient-reported physical function. They did, however, see some changes on some secondary outcomes like endocrine symptoms, pain, physical health. So there was some suggestion that the more activity did have more specific benefits. But, um, you know, I don't know what you think about that. If uh, if that's a failure or that's a good thing that um, generally um, exercise, no matter what you're doing, is going to have a benefit and that, you know, we just need to be more specific for certain side effects. I'm not sure. My perspective is... I'm less concerned about, you know, whether or not we find or whatever the case may be, whether it's more or less as effective. But the fact that we are asking those questions, it's what makes me so excited in in that people are starting to ask these questions. So we we may and you may be familiar with a study by Norris at all was a resistance training study in prostate cancer. And they did something similar where they looked at two days a week versus three days a week of, of weight training. And the three days a week resulted in an extra 50% of extra training volume. So they did, you know, 150% of the work versus 100% and really found no differences in, in strength of physical function after 12 weeks. And similar to that, you, you can look at that and say, well, maybe extra training doesn't do a whole lot. Or you can say, well, it was only 12 weeks. Maybe that extra volume over time might make a difference. So uh, the fact that these studies are coming out in the last three to five years are, to me, a really strong sign of of how we are as a field starting to shift that thinking into looking at this. So uh, just the fact that people are looking at it is what makes me so excited. No, that's very true. And you know, and then I think the next question that really jumps out to me in this top 10 list is what about the safety concerns? So that's where there's been a lot of uh, thought and gone into how do we move what we know from research into the general population and in part of clinical care? And the safety question always comes up. And so the review here really suggests that, you know, there are some general uh, contraindications to exercise by cancer site that are in the American College of Sports Medicine guidelines. And they're pretty general, and I think they're very useful. Um, But then the difficulty is that a lot of the research has been done in very selective populations. So if you're doing a randomized trial or you're doing uh, an exercise trial, it's typically in very early stage cancer survivors. So what we know probably fits well for 
early stage breast cancer, early stage colon cancer, um, some prostate cancer groups. But then when you start thinking about making a blanket statement that exercise is safe for cancer survivors, that's when it gets a bit more tricky and where, you know, someone who works in this field gets a little hedgy um, in terms of conveying this message to patients themselves as well as, as other healthcare providers, because there are a lot of caveats. And so what um, the, the article kind of goes through is um, just maybe some other things to think about beyond um, maybe what's been available so far. So they talk about the three prominent safety issues that are pretty unique to cancer or very relevant across multiple cancer sites is the issue of immune compromise, um, more advanced or metastatic disease, and what are the appropriate safety screening tools to um, help people engage in exercise. And I think those are all important considerations. The immune compromise is obviously a big issue while undergoing chemotherapy. And certainly that's where, when we're doing those studies, the gym is spotless. There are sanitary wipes going everywhere. If someone has a whiff of being sick who's an exercise trainer, they don't get to come in. So we really put a lot of emphasis on that. And so I think if you can have a clinical program that's specifically dedicated to those on treatment, you can really try and manage that piece of the infection risk that would stop people going to a community space. Um, advanced disease is also a really tricky one. As people move from sort of early stage cancer to more advanced and they may have metastatic disease that's affecting, say, bone for instance, that's when it's very hard to have generalized guidelines for these people. Certainly, if you have a um, metastatic lesion in a bone, the, the potential risk of fracture is there, and especially if it's a long bone, um, you know, a, a femur or something like that, and or a vertebral um, body. So those things concern me by giving blank statements. So I think that's where we do need to spend some time of understanding how do we promote exercise for this group. It probably can't be a blanket statement. It probably has to be something more specific, which I think we're going to talk about. And the last is the appropriate screening. And I think that's something where um, it's an ongoing debate. Does everyone need an extra pre-screen um, exercise, graded exercise test? Um, do you need a sign-off from a physician if you are a cancer survivor? Is that only for high-risk people? Who are the high-risk people? Um, a little bit of this article touches on that, but I think it's a, a really big question in the field. Those three points alone and, and within that kind of bigger context of, of the need for, for people to understand safety issues in cancer survivors one as you said it really we can't make that sweeping statement that exercise is good for all cancers and it it highlights the need for professionals in this area who are really trained and nuanced in not just exercise in general but how cancer the disease works and how cancer treatments can affect people because as you said something as as easy as this compromised immune system and, and a greater risk for infection that's not something that people outside this field are well aware of and so if you have a survivor coming into your gym there is a risk of you just throwing them on any weights or putting them in a swimming pool where you're putting them at a heightened risk so it really highlights the need for people to to dig into this field and really understand the nuances of it because outside looking in it can be too easy to just say exercise is good for cancer let's give them what everyone else gets definitely and then on the flip side we're always pushed up against like well should, are we are we from a barrier to people who are or have early stage cancer for just getting activity in the community like should we be having all these safety rules and and uh, are we making it seem like it's unsafe and it's a it's a real balance to get the message out that it's generally okay but you need to you know maybe keep aware of these certain things or it, it's a challenge for sure that's a, yeah it's a really interesting point that you do have to it's it's sitting on a knife edge per se and i think even with the the we talked about the guidelines and how generic they can be i interviewed a, a gentleman mark Arado, with uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia which is it, it's a unique blood cancer and he rode 30 miles into the interview and was going to ride 30 miles home for the interview. And if we kind of chuck those generic guidelines at him, he'd look at us and go, well, you know, I'm doing, I'm doing 60, 70, 80 miles a week. Why, why are you telling me to do two or three days of exercise? And that's, again, where you, where you kind of talk about this need for individualized care. And, and the more the field grows and the more advanced we get and the more we understand the diseases, we can provide that type of care, but right now it's just not there. Definitely. And that was the question number 10 in the, in the top 10 list was, how do we translate physical activity research into clinical and community oncology practice? And that is a challenge. 
because one of the things that the tension that this article tries to get at is we want to increase the intervention uptake and boost the number of people that are benefiting from this scientific research by having programs for them to engage in. But on the flip side, we don't want to lose the efficacy of the program as the intervention is implemented in a non-research setting. So are things getting diluted if they aren't um, they aren't delivered by trainers that have a lot of experience? Or um, now it's not as rigorous research study, so we kind of hedge a little bit on the prescription. Um, and so that's where the, the last question here really is, what's the optimal strategy for trying to move this into care for all those reasons? Does it need to be individualized? Um, how do we get those services to people? Um, and how do we make sure that they're getting the most bang for their buck in terms of engaging in activity um, with the guidance we're giving them. Yeah, let's pause there because we'll, we'll revisit the idea of, of translating exercise in, in, from research into a clinical setting. But let's backtrack a, a little bit and talk a little bit about some of the cancer-specific symptoms that people may experience and, and how these can be managed by exercise or physical activity that we know right now? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, one of the things that we looked at also is one of the other questions in this paper um, was what, you know, what, are, what do we know in terms of what side effects can be benefited by exercise? And so um, you know, at this point, we, there is fairly solid evidence um, from large meta-analyses where they put all the research together and then do stats on the pooled information, that exercise has been shown to improve fatigue primarily, sleep disturbances, depression, and anxiety. And uh, there's been less studies that have targeted more sort of newer or more less common, I guess, um, side effects, such as things like neuropathy and arthralgias, um, you know, uh, hot flashes related to hormonal therapies, um, you know, sexual function, cognitive dysfunction. So we don't know as much about some of those side effects, but most of the evidence really is around fatigue and depression and anxiety. Cancer treatment can turn your life upside down and you can experience a lot of you know, nausea, depression, anxiety, self-esteem, you know, all those issues can really affect your day-to-day life. And particularly when you talk about fatigue and it's so counterintuitive to think of how drained you may be the day over, the day after chemotherapy. And we're coming at you and saying, getting up and moving may be the best thing for that fatigue. And it really highlights the need to, to get this information out to cancer patient survivors that uh, while it may be counterintuitive, it could be the best thing for your symptoms to get out and move. Definitely. And that's um, sometimes a hard sell. And so definitely when we're bringing people into our research studies or some of our clinical programs, I usually have to say, like, just stick with me for like four weeks. I promise that, you know, you will <laughs> see the benefits. Um, and, and really, it does take a little while. It's not, um, you know, I guess some pe- for some people, a bout of exercise is a magical thing and you feel amazing afterwards. Um, but for others, maybe not. They may need to um, stick with it a bit to start seeing that some of the things that they do on a daily basis are getting a little easier. Climbing stairs all of a sudden maybe becomes a little bit easier. Those type of things, because um, sometimes it is getting them to buy in is a bit tricky, especially when you're going through something like chemotherapy. And that's a difficulty as well, is that typically you're feeling worse and worse and worse as chemotherapy goes on. And we're trying to um, use a progressive exercise prescription that increases frequency, intensity, type and time as you go. So there's a little bit of tension around that. And we're trying to figure out what is the best way to prescribe exercise, especially during that treatment time when we know people are getting um, just more and more fatigued, more and more um, impacted by the treatment. One of the more common questions I get, and I'm sure you do too, is this idea of well, you know, if they're early stage cancer survivors, that's great. But what about these people who are at an advanced stage of their disease where, you know, they, it may even be a terminal cancer? Is there a role of, of exercise in that population? Yeah, we covered that here in this article. And that's number nine. Is there a role for physical activity in cancer survivors with an advanced disease? And when we put on our research hat, it's really hard to say because those are people that haven't been enrolled in research studies. Um, when research studies have been done, they've been very small, mostly because it is a population. There's a lot of variability in terms of um, the experiences people are having, the side effects they're having, the experiences um, may be difficult to enroll individuals, especially at that time frame when they may have other priorities. But that, on the flip side of that, um, you know, I put my physical therapy hat on, you know, I see the benefit of targeted rehabilitation across the lifespan, especially in some of these cases as well. 
trying to help people maintain physical function, their own independence, ambulation, all those things. And so that's where I think with advanced disease, it really probably is going to have to be a more individualized, targeted approach with a, quite a, um, a well-experienced exercise professional or physical therapist who has experience working with that clinical population and really knows how to engage that population, what's safe for them, how to best prescribe exercise and, and work with that population. So I think that's where really we're going to see most of that move forward is just going to be more in a clinical practice realm than maybe even a research realm. Okay, so let's come back to this idea of translation. And if I were to ask you to describe your ideal cancer rehabilitation center and and how it, how that looks across the cancer continuum, give me a picture of what that would look like for you. I almost like to even take a step back because when I think about that, there's some key things that I that inform that. So the biggest thing for me in terms of thinking what an ideal system would look like is thinking, well, why isn't it there already? And so there's a really nice paper by a group in Toronto, in Canada, actually, who asked, kind of really looked at what are the barriers to integrating exercise into oncology care currently. And they had a really nice summary of five main points that I think are things that I think about when I'm trying to figure out what a perfect program would look like. So the first is that there's still an impression by clinicians that there may be, um, that exercise might increase the risk of injury, increase fatigue, exacerbate symptoms. So I think we still need to do a lot of education with our clinicians that, you know, there is a benefit to exercise, here are the, here's the evidence, um, and start getting their patients active. What we've seen is that when people are part of our trials, they go back to their oncologist and you know t- can't stop talking about how great it is to be active. And, and we anecdotally hear from the oncologist that sometimes people in, in our trials are sort of not sailing through, because I don't think you sail through chemotherapy really, but are doing better during chemotherapy than it, their patients that maybe aren't involved in our trials or exercise. Then the next thing they they identified in this paper was overwhelmed and financially drained clinical programs. And this is something where here in Canada, it's a publicly funded healthcare system. There's one pot of money and the cancer drugs, the oncologists, the nurses, everybody's coming out of that one pot. So how do we add exercise programming or triaging people to community or something as part of that system? How do we get into the conversation about we should be part of the, the, the financial outlay for services you have? Physical space restrictions was another thing that was uh, brought up by this group in Toronto. I think that's very clear. Certainly at our cancer center, there's not a spare room, a spare inch um, that isn't being used for something already. And so having an in-house clinical exercise program may be something that's a bit a challenge if there is this physical space restriction. The last two I think are really key that they highlight. The lack of referral system to clinicians with relevant exercise experience with cancer patients. We find over and over again that clinicians are very reluctant to recommend exercise for their patients or recommend uh, any services to their patients without understanding who it is that's delivering that service and the quality of it. So they're more than happy to refer people to our research trials because we've been doing them for the last 10 or 15 years. And that's thanks to Dr. Don McKenzie, who was here before me uh, and then has um, collaborated with me since I've gotten here. Those relations have been built and they're happy to refer. If we were, um, if you're a community health um, exercise trainer and you want to start your own clinical exercise group, it is a challenge for you to get a referral from a clinician. They don't know who you are and they are not interested in referring um, if they don't know who you are. And the last thing they highlighted in this um, paper from Daniel Santamina in Toronto was the lack of the time for discussion between patients and physicians about exercise. There's so many different discussions happening in that treatment room that, you know, lifestyle change and exercise may not be top of mind. My response to that is always, we don't want you to do that job. You plant the seed and then have some sort of referral system such that you can connect people to the services that the experts, the therapists and exercise professionals can handle for you. Um, So that's where I I sort of go with, with that. So when I think about those barriers, then I thought, okay, well, what are the facilitators that we know from the research? And there's kind of three things that I picked up, two from a research studies and one from my just own experience. So the first is that a recommendation by an oncologist does actually increase uptake of physical activity messaging and how much physical activity you do. And that's the classic study by Lee Jones from 2004, where some individuals got a recommendation from an oncologist, someone else was just handed a piece of paper, and then those that actually had the recommendation from an oncologist did more physical activity on a self-reported questionnaire. 
The next is that we see greater benefit from supervised programs versus home-based programs. And the evidence I use for that is, is a systematic review I did with my colleague, Margie McNeely, way back in 2006, which is definitely due for an update. Um, but you know, consistently, the supervised programs have greater improvements on fatigue, greater improvements in quality of life. Great, you know, So how do we embed that within cancer care, knowing that that's where you get the most benefit, especially during treatment? And the last is that we need to make sure the physicians are confident in who's delivering the programming. So I think that speaks a lot to developing those relationships, having um, a certification process similar to ACSM or some other body where you have a designation of I'm a cancer exercise specialist. And then, you know, they if we flip on to cardiac rehab or pulmonary rehab, those are established programs that doctors all know about them. They refer their patients into them. And so we need to establish something similar where there's clear credentials. It's clear the value of the program. It's clear the quality of the program and, and kind of take it from there. So that's what I think about when I think of an ideal program. Those are all phenomenal points and both highlight, you know, one, I think how much work has to be done in this area, particularly to navigate the barriers. As you said, you know, we're really, we're pushing a rock up a hill and it's not a case of if it's a case of when we get to the top it really will snowball and, and once as you said we can learn from cardiac rehab mistakes and learn from their model and how they establish their program and protocols and develop billing codes for for various uh, conditions or cancer or treatment or whatever i think that will then just facilitate this this as you said steamroll and turn it into a standard of care so where do you think we need the most work or what do you think we need to to really kind of accelerate that process and accelerate the work we have to do between where we are right now and exercise oncology as a standard of care? That's a great question. And, I, you know, we, you know, not to go back to our top tens again, um, paper, but we did talk about that. And really, it comes down to money. Um, you know, who pays for these services? Is it an individual patient that may be experiencing other financial drains by the fact that they're not working or they're expected to pay for certain cancer treatments, that type of thing? Um, is it the healthcare system? Well, if it is the healthcare system, whether that's uh, Medicaid, Medicare, um, in our in our whole country, home country, it's the provincial healthcare system, um, we need to make a strong economic argument that this is beneficial um, using metrics that they care about. So that might be return to work or or lost years of productivity, or um, hospitalizations, all those sort of things, I think, is where some of the work needs to be done. And it's not easy. It's uh, proving cost-effectiveness of something where, um, you know, people are experiencing different types of cancers, different outcomes, is definitely a challenge. So I think some of that economic argument needs to be done. And then I think we're on the right track in terms of the credentialing. A lot of work is being done in terms of training, exercise trainers and physiotherapists. And I think more of that will help, I think, um, bring up the profile of the, the clinicians who work in this world and really start to convince the, the other healthcare providers that we are the experts, that we are competent, um, that we are people that should be part of the healthcare team. You, you kind of highlight how new our field is and if you compare it to exercise or cardiac rehab I should say they are similar in age and that where we are right now 20 year, 30 years deep into our field is where cardiac rehab was 20 or 30 years deep into their field so we're on the same track we're just 20 ish years behind them so as you said it all this work is it, it takes a lot of work to get us there but it will happen and and what an exciting time to be a part of the field to to you know particularly pe people like you up in Canada who are really laying the foundation to this field and and so exciting to see what what we've got moving forward well, I hope that we can find some way to, you know, similar to the trajectory of, you know, people getting telephone access, you know, in, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, they skipped over the, you know, the landlines and went straight to the cell phone, you know, they kind of just skipped that level of it. So I'm hoping that we can find some quick skip um, to the current technology um, or the current um, clinical care um, more quickly than having to go through that, the exact evolution of cardiac rehab. So I hope we can leverage technology or something um, to, or their experience to just jump start that piece so uh an, another question i get quite often is as a cancer patient or survivor when is the best time to exercise in terms of you know should you do it at diagnosis should you wait till after treatment what do you think in terms of what's the best time to exercise that's a great question of when do we really try and intervene with this group is it during treatment or after treatment 
And there's a lot of discussion about this. In, in my mind, as a physiologist and physiotherapist, so a very clinically based person, um, for me, helping to uh, maintain physical function during treatment or at least de um, lessen the slope of decline is really important because to me, I think if you can limit impairment, then it's much easier to um, recover from it if it's a less of an impairment. So that's how I think about it, a very clinical lens. But, and so I would say exercise during treatment is a really key piece to help people maintain function. The flip side of that, and this, to be fair, comes a lot more from the exercise psychologists, um, is that it's a very challenging time to exercise during treatment. You've got, you're not feeling great. You've got a million appointments. You've got a lot of anxiety around what's happening, especially if it's the first time you're going through all these things. You've got a lot of questions. It's hard to make these decisions in time. Um, that, you know, maybe after treatment, let people get through that and, and use cancer um, as a springboard to say, okay, you know, good job. You made it through your primary treatment. Now let's think about engaging in lifestyle change. A flip side to that, to go back to the first advocating for during treatment, in our experience, a lot of patients are able to take time off work during treatment um, through extended health benefits and other opportunities. And so they actually, uh, you know, maybe it's counterintuitive, they have more time to be more active. So they actually, it has worked well to have people active during treatment, giving them a standard program um, because they have a bit more flexible time than they might have once they return to work after they have finished their treatment and are engaging more in, in usual life again. So I'm more on the during treatment side, but uh, you know, I'm willing to say that there's probably different circumstances that it fits better for different cancer populations or different geographical locations or different um, patient presentations. Some people are overwhelmed and it's just too much. It's not the right time and other people aren't and want to have something to do that's pro proactive. So it might be, uh, there's probably a benefit to either option. It kind of falls back to their our two favorite words, it depends, and that's our, kind of, <laughs> our bio. So no, it's true. you've worked with a, a ton of, of cancer patients, survivors. What are the what are some of the, the bigger misconceptions patient survivors come to you about exercise? You know, like anything and this probably is not necessarily unique to cancer survivors. They think exercise is this, you know, people, especially that haven't exercised in the past, think it has to be, you know, Jane Fonda workouts or something like that. And I think for us, it's really encouraging people when they come into our centers that, you know, it's. And again, we're using standard exercise equipment. There's nothing, you know, we are putting people on treadmills and bicycles. So it's not like we've divorced ourselves from the, that much from exercise. But we just encourage people that, you know, this is, it, it doesn't have to be um, a torture session that, you know, you can't come here. We tailor the exercise for you. We progress it slowly so that you can succeed and just get the feel of it. We really start slowly to avoid injuries, um, all those sort of things to get buy-in from people. So I think it's being approachable, really talking to people, getting where they're at and really trying meeting them, meet them with what their experiences of exercise you know, people are curious. Um, you know, some people come to us like, I'm not sure this is the right thing for me. Uh, and we would just try and meet them in that place and just say, okay, like, you know, let's try a few different things. You tell me how it's going. So I think that's like the whole exercise has to be Jane Fonda is the main thing that we try and that we hear and we try to assuade. I'm trying to think of other misconceptions that come up. What kind of things have you run into? Yeah. It's a good question. <laughs> I haven't thought about either. Um, I think <laughs> what I mean, a, a staple for me with breast cancer patients, survivors in particular, is don't lift a gallon of milk over your head. And right. you've got patients during treatment or even survivors two, three, four, five years post treatment that aren't willing to or are apprehensive to weight training with overhead exercises because of that. And of course, there's there's limitations and range of motion issues there that you have to work around. But this idea that uh, it really is just this dogma that has stayed with probably an older generation of survivors and what was the norm 10 years ago in terms of the advice, it, it we just know that that's not the case now. And, and the, the sooner you get active and the more you move, generally, the better it's going to be for you. No, that's a great point. And I think that is, um, yeah, that is, hits the nail on the head. It's like, what is safe? You know, people think like that, 
you know, after surgery, they shouldn't do a variety of different things. Breast cancer is a perfect example. Um, we've done some work um, on that early post-operative phase, like sort of inpatient and, and right after your surgery. And it definitely, it shows that the more you start moving gentle range of motion early, the better. And once drains are out, to really start progressing to main free range of motion um, quite quickly. And so I do think you're right that people are really, A, concerned after surgery about pain and what's safe and what's effective and how much can you stretch this area or not. And then that old chestnut of like not leave, um, lifting more than five pounds because it would increase your risk of lymphedema is still out there. And you know, every now and then we see it in a patient um, education material that's sort of still sticking around somewhere. So I think that's a lot of education then, um, you know, what is safe and what are the red flags? Like if you're experiencing this, that's when I want you to go back to your healthcare professional or tell me that, um, that you know, you're experiencing pain or um, you have had a, some change in swelling. That's when I want to hear about it. But in general, General, uh, if we progress safely, you know that there isn't there is no risk really at this point that we know that you know being physically active would increase your risk of lymphedema, especially if you add exercise in slowly. So that's a great point. Okay, so we'll finish on this last kind of question for you. So if you had some advice for one, a professional interested in this area of of exercise oncology looking to you know work with cancer patients or survivors, and two, a survivor themselves who may be listening. What are, what are kind of some general pieces of advice you'd have for either of those folks uh, looking to get involved or, or start an exercise program? Oh, it's a great question. Okay, for the survivor themselves, um, I would hope that they have access to someone with, with information, like an exercise professional, a physiotherapist, a nurse, practitioner, someone they can speak to about, you know, what is exercise, what's safe for me, and be point, pointed to some resources. So there's great resources on the, uh, the American Cancer Society website, Canadian Cancer Society website, um, ACSM, you know, to get people some general information, like what is exercise, what does 150 minutes mean, what's moderate, what's vigorous, um, to get some guidance. Because I think if you don't have experience with exercise, it's really hard to imagine how to engage in it. So I, I it's my hope that survivors can get access to resources somewhere um, to really get them moving. The flip side of that is, of course, that we really default to, you know, just get out and walk. Walking, if you are able to walk, is one of the easiest exercises to do. It's preferred by pretty much everyone. And it's one of those exercises that you can really um, increase the duration or distance that you go quite quick, quite easily. You know, like once around the block, okay, it's once and once and a half. Um, you know, you can go out and back, whatever you feel like doing. It's a pretty straightforward approach. So as long as you feel like you're safe to do that, um, there's no balance concerns, you can always take someone with you if you have concerns about that, um, you know, walking is a pretty easy thing to get started with. So even when you're feeling not great, um, if there's no reason that you've been told medically that you shouldn't be active, you know, just getting out for a five, 10 minute walk, you know, anything is better than nothing. Um, you know, avoiding inactivity is what the guidelines say. So I, that's what I would encourage people to do. Just get outside, get walking as much as you can. The other question was about for an exercise trainer or someone in the field. Yeah. Um, that's where I think you really need to build your partnerships with your local community in terms of oncologists and nurse providers. What we've seen a lot of benefit from is that the nurses are the ones who spend the most time with these patients. They're, you know, for four hours on their chemotherapy infusions, the nurses are the ones who are coming around, checking how they're doing. And that's a time that we've really found that there is a lot of sharing and discussion between the patients and between the, the nurses and the patients. So we've been really thinking about how we can educate um, nurse practitioners around just having them be able to guide people to uh, like good quality resources or good quality programming, because they're the ones that probably have the most time to to discuss with the patient and the most access. So I think building relationships with those people and then knowing your stuff, being credentialed, being comp um, you know running very good programming, um, safe programming, intelligent programming, um, you need to get the buy-in from the clinical community and you need to be running a tight ship uh, if you want to do that. That's a great point. And I'll, I'll piggyback off that in developing relationships with these physicians, oncologists, and nurses takes a lot of time. And as you said, they tend to be apprehensive of Joe Blogs coming off the street and saying, I'm, in, I'm a trainer and I train cancer patients. And they kind of say, well, I don't know what you're about. And having the perseverance to, to withstand that and to, if you're really passionate and you want to stay in this field, it takes time. I mean, for, for us at Ohio State, it took 10 years to build these collaborative rate, uh, relationships with oncologists. And I'm sure you saw the same at British Columbia in that even in an academic setting, it's hard enough to, to build the, the trust between those professionals. And 
as you look to go into this field, it really does take that perseverance to to you know it, oncologists and physicians are busy you know and nurses have a lot on their hands too and so if you really want to get into this field just stick with it and you know as you as you said Kristen you know obviously have the credentials and have the background but ultimately it just takes that drive to just stay with it and be passionate and keep 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 on these people to, to maintain those relationships. Yeah. And, and really, if you can partner with an academic center, so somewhere like Ohio state or, or, or the university, I mean, that's where you have that, um, you know, I have some inbuilt and you know, credibility potentially. So that's a, a great way. I think that's where some of this field can grow is that if, if we have community-based exercise programs that are run, you know, in collaboration with the university, you're training undergrad kinesiology students to work in this field. You're being oversaw the whole thing is overseen by a lead exercise trainer that has a certification in conjunction with uh, an investigator at, the, at a university. I think that's where uh, people have had good success at um, getting getting these programs going. That doesn't help someone that wants to be an independent practitioner and runs a really nice um, exercise, clinical exercise space that's outside of the university. Um, but I think that if we're trying to move it forward, this certainly connecting with the university does um, have some benefits for sure. Well, listen, Kristen, I can't thank you enough for for the chat today. I, I got a lot out of it. And I think it was it was such a wonderful overview of the field as a whole and and the direction we're going. And it definitely we have a lot of work in front of us, but it, it's really exciting to be at the forefront of it and really driving the field forward. So why don't you, if people are looking to get in touch with you, whether it's true about your research or even just you on social media, uh, where are some places they can find you? Well, certainly they can find me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is, uh, as I pull it up here, <laughs> my Twitter handle is at KL Campbell, PhD. We also have a Twitter handle and a research um, website for our lab, which is the Clinical Exercise Physiology Lab at the University of British Columbia. So the Twitter handle there is at C-E-P-L underscore U-B-C. And certainly you can find me in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia. The website's there. It connects to our lab website that has um, some publications we think are really important um, other resources the studies we're doing news and updates so um, that's probably the best way to get in touch and my email address is there as well brilliant and i'll, I'll put all those all those uh, links in the show notes as well um i quite I often have to put my own twitter handle in there because people have no idea how to spell kieran <laughs> so listen kristen I, again i want to thank you so much for for stopping by and, and thanks for the chat today well no it's great that you're doing this i'm sure it's going to be really beneficial to people so well done so that's it for this week's episode, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. It probably was one of the most comprehensive pictures you'll get of the field and just a really great overview of, of where we're at, where we've been and, and where we're going. So again, a huge thanks to Kristen for sharing her insight there. And uh, you can find her at all the various links we'll have there for you in the show notes as well. Uh, feel free to jump on uh, Twitter and find me at Kieran Fairman or go to reachbeyondcancer.com and you can find us there. Uh, so that's it, folks, for this week. Uh, hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you soon.